but yeah, your your episodes normally an episode of this podcast is the the prep is three thousand words, the script. But today it's two thousand. Yours are always two thousand because you just don't have the attention span yet for a full three thousand. Purdy got in. Yep, Purdy got in. Purdy's going out. <laughs> Get out, you cheeky cat. Get out of it. <laughs> Come in when it's done, you cheeky cat. I'm not having it, Evie. I'm not having it anymore. Oh, literally, there's my laughter line. There's your laughter lines, yes. <laughs> hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser-known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... This story begins in 1675, which was during the reign of the Stuarts, specifically Charles II. So he was the one who didn't get his head chopped off. Okay. Yeah? Yeah. He was He was the one that they restored um, after they realised that Oliver Cromwell... It wasn't going as well as they'd hoped. Who's Oliver Cromwell? Oliver Cromwell is the only person who's been head of a British Republic when we didn't have a royal family in charge at all. Cool. Instead, we had Oliver Cromwell. Mm. Do you know how angry the royals were with him, though? How? After he died, they dug him back up and chopped his head off. What? Yeah. They posthumously chopped his head off. Again? Uh, no, no, it, he died of natural causes. He'd lived his life and he died. But to show that they were really angry with what he'd done, they dug up the body and chopped his head off and put it on a spike on Traitor's Gate. So, yeah, if you upset the royals, even into death will they decide to do these kinds of things to you. But don't worry, we don't need to get into any of that blood and guts. This is a happy story. Do you know there's not a single death in this story? For once, you're not going to have to brace yourself for imminent death. Hooray! But we're starting in 1675 because that is the year that John Lethbridge was born in the town of Newton Abbott in Devon, on the banks of the River Tain and about four miles from the sea. So you know how there's that sticky-outy bit on the bottom of... that's Cornwall? Before you get to Cornwall, the fat bit of that leg that sticks out, that's Devon essentially yeah and the the people from Devon and the people from Cornwall they have a friendly rivalry oh frenemies Evie frenemies that's that's good that's good that's good to know we don't know anything about John's childhood at all so assume he was a baby he was a child he was a teenager we're going to join him when he's become an adult because when he became an adult, he also became a wool merchant. Is that a guy that sells wool, fancy wool? It's a guy who trades in wool and cloth made from wool, yeah. Some of it will be fancy, some of it will be really low quality wool. I like that. Because mm, there's got to be something for the poor people to buy. It can't all be the finest Harris Tweed. What's Harris Tweed? Harris Tweed is a type of cloth which normally has a kind of tartan pattern in it that's made using um, urine. 
amongst other things. You have to wee on it in order to make the colours stick. Ew. I believe that's... Urine's involved. I'm not quite sure why, but you do have to pee but, on it. Well, I know that gunpowder... That, that long ago, gunpowder was made of women's wee. Was it? That's a fact I did not know. The uses of wee... I believe it was also used at some time as a uh, toothpaste. Yeah, I know that. So the Romans maybe we it. need to go back to using we for more things. We're just flushing it down a toilet, Evie. What a waste. <laughs> no. Maybe we could cook with it. <laughs> That's disgusting. Eat your wee berries. No. I'm happy flushing it down, <laughs> not bringing it back up. Well, I think we're missing a trick. I think we're wasting money. We're flushing money down the drain, not using the Wii. Anyway, that's Harris Tweed. He, I don't know that he traded in that. He was just a wool merchant. Now, the centre of the wool industry in Devon was the city of Exeter, which was only 20 miles away from Newton Abbott. And in the 1700s, it was booming. It was doing really well. The it lo- was doing explosions of money! Yes, they were firing money from confetti cannons in <laughs> in Exeter. That's good. The local ports were never shut, loading tons and tons of cloth for export to the continent each week, to the point that eventually the demand for cloth was greater than could be produced by the available sheep. So we didn't have enough sheep to get enough wool to make enough cloth to fulfil all of the orders. So we were... Sh- we, we So they needed to steal sheep. Mm, we weren't sheep rustling. Uh, we were buying sheep. We were importing sheep um, from the continent, along with importing loads of raw wool. So people in Holland and um, the sort of low countries, people in... Hollywood! No, that's in America. Um, Holland. It's just across the water. Okay. It's not that far. It's, okay. It's definitely not on the, the west coast of America. But okay. we were importing from France, from Spain, wherever there were sheep whose wool wasn't already bagsied. We were like, we'll have it. Just ship it over to Exeter. We've got the guys who can work on it. There were over 12,000 individual weavers working in the area. So it was, it was a massive industry. That is cool. Mm. However... In spite of the fact that he'd become a wool merchant during the boom time in Devon, John Lethbridge was finding that he was not making enough money to feed his family. Oh no. Yeah, he was having troubles. This may have been because by 1714, when John was 34 years old, so younger than me, he already had over a dozen children. What? Yeah. Is that true? That's true. Eventually, he and his long-suffering wife ended up with 17 kids. Yeah, 17 mouths to feed. That's not cool. Well, there was much greater um, amount of infant mortality back then. So more kids died back in the 1700s than do today. So it was almost an insurance policy. And also... um, there were less things to stop a woman becoming pregnant back then. I thought you said there were no deaths. No, there are no deaths. No one's dying. So that's the problem. You just said. No, that's the problem. All of his kids survived. 
if some of them had have died, he probably could have afforded to feed them all. But they all lived. He had very strong children. Oh. Yeah. Every single one of them came out strapping and ready to go and probably within two days was working on the farm shearing sheep. That's not true, but you can imagine it would be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what if they were only babies? Yeah, you can force babies to work. They're not very good at it, but you can force them to. We made you work. We put dusters on your knees when did, you were crawling round the floor. Actually... No, but I considered it. You need to pay pay your way because what John was finding was to try and feed 17 kids, to try and clothe 17 kids, to try and make sure that everything that needed to be provided for 17 kids. I mean, how many beds would you need, even if they were sharing? You'd need loads of beds. 40 million. Well, that's a bit of an overstatement. I don't think they're <laughs> going to have 40 million kids, no matter how hard they work at making babies. Luckily for John, though, around this time, when he was wondering how he could make some money, he remembered a story he'd heard about a sea captain from Boston in America called Sir William Phipps. Do not laugh at William Phipps. He was, he was a sea captain. Just Phipps. He sounded like Phibs. He had authority, Evie. He was an important man in Boston, Massachusetts. Okay, okay William Phipps. 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 He's not famous. Well, William Phipps had invented a diving bell that would allow him to salvage treasure from wrecked ships on the seabed. Seabed. So a diving bell is almost exactly what it sounds like. It's a bell-shaped sort of contraption where you go under it and as they lower it into the sea, it captures a pocket of air. So you can stay under the bell as that goes right down to the bottom of the sea and you can grab whatever's on the seafloor. But can you see? No. No, you can't see. You're in the sea, but you can't see the sea. You can just see what's directly below your diving bell. So they had to be very accurate about where they dropped it. But once it hit the seabed, you could pick up anything that was, was on the seabed there. Say, gold doubloons. Or... What are doubloons? They're a kind of coin. Um, or jewels. Or if you've been dropped in the wrong place... Whale bones. You know, it, it depended on where you got dropped. Reportedly, though, Sir Phipps was very good at figuring out where to drop his diving bell. Because he'd found the wreck of a Spanish ship called the Concepcion. 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 In 1687, and had managed to recover, you ready for this? Over 30 tonnes of silver, which are worth an estimated £100 million today, in today's money. So he, he, with his diving bell, went to the bottom of the ocean and he found £100 million worth of silver. That is extreme! It's probably enough so that you could feed and clothe 17 kids, isn't it? Now, he was sensible. He gave some of the money to King Charles because he said, well, I found this, but you're my king. So here, have some of this money. And in return, he was made governor of Boston. Governor? Yeah, he was put in charge of Boston. Governor. So the place where he came from as a lowly, he, he started out very poor, did Sir William Phipps. He managed to work his way up to becoming a sea captain and then 
because he took this risk and he found this money, he ended up as governor of the place where he'd been born, which what? is pretty good. He was running the joint. What's a governor? A governor is a person who runs an area. Okay. In this case, Boston, Massachusetts. Say no more about governors, please. I've got to say one more thing. Yeah. Because when he was made governor of Boston, he sailed back across to America to take up his new position and arrived just in time to find the Salem witch trials were in full swing, where lots of women were being accused of being witches. Why women? Because as we're learning from equal rights, men can't be witches. Yes, they can. They're warlocks. Well, that's a warlock. And actually, in the um, in the Salem witch trials, there were some men who were also accused of witchcraft. So, yeah, you're right. Men can be accused of witchcraft, but they can't be accused of being witches. And, you know, seeing this, Sir William Phipps quickly put a stop to all of that stupidity. Well, he did after 20 people had already been executed for witchcraft. And probably only because his wife had recently accused, been accused of being a witch. What? So he, he was just willing to let those weird people in Salem get on with whatever they were doing. But, but his wife! Yeah, well, that's when he stepped in. He was like, look, you can do whatever you want over there in Salem. It's not really the, the best area anyway. No one really cares about you. But as soon as you accuse my wife, I'm sorry, that is the bloody end. There will be no more witches. There will be no more trials. There will be no more executions. That's it. You've had your fun. So William Phipps was all like, you've pushed the line, mate. This is my wife you're talking about. Don't you dare execute her. Yeah. Because then I'll punch your butt. Yes, he threatened to punch all of their butts, which is a common uh, way of keeping order when you're a governor. Anyway, the important point of this story, for John at least, was the idea that you could use a machine to allow you to get to the seabed and recover missing treasures. Yeah! So what do you think he's going to do? I think he's going to go to recover treasures. Oh, dear. After he invents something. Yes. Because the coastline around Devon and Cornwall is some of the most treacherous in the UK, with thousands of ships having been lost over the centuries. So if someone had the ability to get down there and go through the holds to find the best stuff... They could easily make a fortune, just like Sir Phipps had done a few decades before. How long's a decade? Ten years. So it's as big as a century. No, it's not as big as a century. But Sir William Phipps, his discovery had happened in Jonathan's lifetime. So he he'd seen, you know, he knew exactly what to do. Did John? Because he'd seen the the benefits that could happen. You could be made governor of a place. With this idea in his head, John Lethbridge got out a piece of paper and a pencil, sharpened it. I like this guy. Checked it was sharp. Ooh. Poked it with his thumb. And he began inventing. Hmm. I like him. Inventing might be too strong a word at this point. What he actually did was he bought himself a large barrel. What? Yeah, and large barrels, for reference in future, are called hogsheads. A barrel? A barrel. A barrel? A wooden barrel. Okay. A wooden barrel! Okay, yes, a wooden barrel with iron rings around it to hold it all together. He got himself a hogshead, a wooden barrel. A, a wooden barrel? John figured that as barrels are watertight, he should be able to stay underwater safely within, within a barrel for as long as the air lasted. So he could be sealed up in a barrel 
and then he could go to the bottom of the ocean in that barrel as long as there was enough air in the barrel. Fair enough. Did he die? <laughs> no, I told you. No one in the story dies. Wait, did he survive? Well, what he needed to know as a starting point was how long the air inside a human-sized barrel was likely to last. So he's saying he's going to go to the bottom of the ocean. Ten years! It's not going to be that long. We're talking in how many minutes it will give him inside a barrel like that. Cause Two hours! Minutes, Evie. We're, what, a we're, minute? We're well within the range of an hour. 30 minutes. But he needs to know exactly. And John chose to conduct his first test on Monday. Th- on his children. No, he didn't do it on his children. Why not? Because, to be fair, kids' lungs don't need as much oxygen because they're only small. So he needed to know how much a man would take. Because um, although he might male. although he might test it on his kids, he's not going to trust them to do the salvage operation, is he? He's going to do that himself. So he needs to know how much air he would have. And he chose to conduct his first test on Monday, May 3rd, 1715, at precisely 9.37am. Do you know how I can be so accurate with that? Internet? There was not the internet back then. Knowledge! No, the reason for this very specific timing of the experiment was so that it coincided with a full solar eclipse. Mm. Solar eclipse. Which is where the moon moves between the Earth and the sun, blocking the sun out entirely. So it looks like it's gone to night time again. This eclipse was known as Halley's Eclipse. Halley's Eclipse. Which is fitting because Edmund Halley, who it was named for, had also designed a diving bell and would later correspond with John regarding his own version of a diving machine to offer advice. So Edmund, Hi- Edmund Haley, or Harley, either way is fine, um, he was an astronomer, but he, he dabbled in lots of different things, engineering, inventing, politics. He was a bit of a polymath. He could do a bit of everything. And he liked to. The total darkness of the eclipse lasted for around two and a half minutes. However, John Lethbridge having asked some of his friends to bung him up tight within the barrel, missed it all. And it was actually half an hour later that he finally knocked on the barrel to indicate that he wanted to be let out. Okay. So he's got about half an hour of air in that barrel. I knew it was half an hour. You said two days, I believe. You said two hours at one point. Then you said a minute. At no point did you say half an hour. Then after I said a minute, I was thinking... Maybe oh, you were half thinking. An hour. Well, the problem with you thinking it is, I don't know that that's true. I think you're just jumping on the bandwagon. No, I'm not. I don't even like ba- wagons. Fair enough. Well, you often get barrels on the back of wagons. I only like decorative wagons. Fine. If I ever, bu- if I ever have to buy your wagon, I will make sure it's decorative. No, I'll decorate the wagon. Okay, so you want to. Do it yourself, wagon. Okay. It's like a little, you know, the red one, black wheels, a little pull bit, that. So I can decorate it. Oh, my word. So you want a traditional red cart wagon thing that they have in American. So, okay. <laughs> Having established that he could survive in a closed barrel for around half an hour without needing more air, John was ready to move on to the second phase of testing. Seeing if he could spend... Mm 
half an hour in the barrel whilst being underwater. Wanting to keep his experiments super secret. Secrets. Secret, secret. He doesn't want anyone to steal it. Mustaches. 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 Secret moustache. But no, <laughs> he, he didn't want anyone else to steal his ideas. So he didn't go to the nearby River Tain to conduct this test. Instead, he dug a ditch in his back garden that would be deep enough for the barrel to be completely covered in water. He had the common sense to dig this ditch close to the well so that he didn't have to cart the water very far, but he did have to, by hand, put the water into the ditch until it was deep enough that his barrel would go in it. John conducted a couple of tests with his barrel being submerged in the ditch and reported (laughs) that he was actually able to stay in the barrel longer than he had been able to on land. So there was something about the pressure variation that allowed him to continue to breathe a little bit longer underwater. How long? 32 minutes? Yeah, maybe something around there. Just a couple more minutes. But it's good to have that wiggle room if you're going to be going to the bottom of the ocean. Hmm. Happy that he approved that a human-sized barrel would give him over half an hour of time underwater, he finally got round to doing some actual inventing. Because to this point, he hasn't actually invented anything. He's just gone in a barrel. Hey, I have an idea. You should attach an oxygen tank. We don't to, have oxygen. To he's the not barrel. Gonna, he's not ah, going to be doing that. Ah, ah, ah. We didn't have compressed oxygen at this time. I'm thinking. If, that could be dangerous. If he was around, if he was around now, you should attach an oxygen tank with those little tubey things that go in your mouth. So a scuba suit is what you're describing. To the barrel, and then he can do it. Well, why would you need the barrel if you've got a scuba suit? He didn't have a scuba suit. No one had invented well, the scuba suit. He had a barrel. Uh, he did He did modify it, though. I just wanted the barrel! He does modify the barrel, OK? Do you want to know how he modifies the barrel? Did he decorate the, wa- the barrel and put it in a decorative wagon? He didn't decorate it. What he did was he adapted it by putting a four-inch viewing window in the middle of the barrel, a little glass viewing panel, which was... An inch and a half thick, the glass, because of the pressure it would be under underwater. So it was a really thick, tiny little glass viewing window, so that he could see out, which is a bonus. And added two holes that he attached big leather gloves to, so that he could reach out of the barrel in order to grab stuff. Stuff! Aside from that, there were just two holes that he put in the top to allow air in and out when he returned to the surface which he bung up before he went down. And that was about it. So he had two big sort of leather gloves attached that stuck out the front that he could put his arms into. He had a little viewing hole so that he could see what he was doing with his big leather arm gloves. And he had two little holes in the top of the barrel that he could, uh, when they brought him back to the top to get a top-up of air, he could just boop, boop. And he'd pump the old air out, draw the new air in, and then he'd plump, plump, put them back in and go back down again. That's that's him done. Dad, after mm. we've done this episode, I'll draw a picture of what it. I think it will look like. Okay, because there are pi- there are drawings of it, so we'll see how close you get. With this rudimentary design finalised, John went to London to find a cooper, because a cooper is a troll. It's a person who makes barrels. A barrel maker is called a cooper. And he needs to find himself someone who's going to make a bespoke barrel for him. He found someone on Stanhope Street 
who was willing to make it. The final machine was six foot long and was wider at the head end than at the feet. So it's kind of not not traditional barrel shaped. It wasn't traditional barrel shaped. It was wider at the head end and then it sort of tapered down towards the feet. Okay. At the bottom, it had weights attached to help it sink gently to the seafloor. So they put a load of sort of lead weighting on one side side so that it would sink because otherwise he'd get in his barrel that was full of air and it'd just bob on the top of the ocean and he might reach with his arms but he's not going to be able to reach down far enough so he needs to be sunk having spent almost all of the remaining money he had on his new diving machine John knew he needed to start salvaging treasure as soon as possible all he needed was to find some companies in London who would be willing to provide him a ship to take him out to the wreck sites So he went around London to all of these different merchants and shipping companies and said, look, I've got this diving machine that I've designed. And if you will give me a boat, I'll go out to all the wrecks around Britain and around the world if you want. And I'll go down there with me big leather gloves and I'll pick up all the gold and jewels and then we can split it. Harvesties. How's that sound? No, I only want one emerald and that's it. That's very specific. And sapphire and a ruby. Oh, so you just want one of every precious stone, just for a collection? Yes, that's mm. it. Well, the shipping companies also said no at first, but that was because they thought he was a bit optimistic, a bit eccentric. You know, he was a wool merchant. He'd never been on a ship, really, before this. He had no no proof that his machine would work in the sea, you know, he tested it in a ditch in a back garden in Newton Abbott. He had not tested it in the sea to this point. So in the sea then? Well, he'd need a boat to do that. And he figured, may as well do this final round of testing and get some money out of it. So I may as well be doing it on site on a wreck. Then uh, just take off the weights, put them on a... I know, get a canoe! He's not going to canoe out to a wreck site. <laughs> We're talking miles out here. Anyway... How long was he gone for? Well, the thing is, most of them said no at first, so he wasn't gone at all. He was just wandering around London. And those that did say yes, they wanted pretty much all of the treasure for them. So the deal they wanted to strike was like, we'll get 90% of the treasure and you can keep 10%, John. And he was thinking, I'm the guy going down and taking the risks of drowning, so I feel like I should get more than that. So there was a bit of a... Debate. Yeah, disagreement around how much of the treasure he should be allowed to keep. Yeah, because he's the guy going down there. Not not you, you lazy merchant idiots. But they're providing the ship and the men to be able to make it all happen. So mm, I would have said just go straight 50-50. 50-50. Well, eventually... 60-40. Oh, you're a good negotiator. Who's getting the 60 in this? John. John's getting 60. Fair enough. Wait, no. 30, 70. So who's getting the 30 there? Merchants. Right. You're a, you're a harsh negotiator. Eventually, after looking for many months, he did find the right backer who was willing to provide him with a ship so that he could go out and prove that his new salvaging system would work. Floating over the site of a wreck for the first time at some point in 1716, John, he clambered into his barrel... And was sealed up. He was lowered by ropes into the water and he sank slowly to the seabed. 
Where he remains to this day. Because he did die. No. John later described the seals around the armholes as being waterproof enough. Meaning that they were slowly but consistently leaking seawater into the barrel while he worked. What? Even worse, the lower he got, the more the water pressure outside began crushing his arms, making it more and more difficult for him to move them the deeper he dived. So, as you go lower, there's more seawater, the weight of it, above you, so it's pushing down on anything. Inside the barrel, because he's got those iron hoops around, it's keeping the pressure out, but where his arms are, it's just crushing his arms the deeper and deeper he gets. Like... If you just squeeze your arms really tight... Yeah, exactly like that. With your claws. With my claws? You mean my fingers? Yeah. Yeah. We don't have claws, Evie. We're not beast people. I'm beast. Yeah, a bit like that. So the deeper it got, the more and more it it crushed him. Like a beast. Like a beast. Clawing onto your... (laughs) Despite these issues, though... His diving machine was actually successful. He could move himself once he got down to the seabed over an area of around 12 metres, which is quite a big area to move about. It's much bigger than that diving bell from Sir Pips. Sir Phipps, even. Now I'm getting his name wrong. Sir Pips. (laughs) And he would regularly spend upwards of six hours at a time in his barrel. He came to the surface every 30 minutes to hand over the treasure he had salvaged and he'd get a refill of air before he'd descend again. So it was back-breaking labour, you know, over six hours. It's a full work day he was doing, lying on his front with his face pressed against this little glass thing with his arms in these little leather things. They're being crushed. Being crushed as he goes down, up, down, up, up down, down, up, You get down, the idea. up, down, up. The machine was held together with iron hoops, and the seals used leather, both materials which don't do too well in seawater. As a result, there was a constant need to replace parts of the machine, as they sort of wore through, but also there was always that low-level worry that he'd left it too long to replace them, and that the next time he went down, one of the hoops would give way, or one of the seals would give way, and he would drown trapped in a tiny barrel at the bottom of the ocean before they could rescue him. So he he was taking risks, was John. This was a risky business that he was doing. Profitable. Yeah, profitable. But very risky. Risky. Would would you do it, do you think? Would this no. be a job that you would take up? If no. John had if John had come up to you at that time and said, Evie, I've got this job. I've built a tinier, Evie sized one, and you can come down and be my apprentice and join me in deep water salvage would you have said yes well first i'd tinker with the barrel a bit put some maybe put another iron hoop oh right you'd, you'd put in put some fail two, safes two other iron hoops on yeah and, and maybe some tree sat some rubber tree sap in between the gaps oh you cork everything much more yeah, yeah okay yeah and then i'd go down so that the air would last longer okay Fair enough. So you'd have some notes for him before you were willing to join? Yes. Like, John, I like what you've done here, but I can do some improvements. Yes. I'm guessing you give yours a go faster stripe? Uh Uh-huh. Nice paint job? No. Unicorn horn? No. You can be the sea unicorn. The (laughs) narwhal? Yeah. 
You could be a narwhal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> On occasions where a seal or a hoop failed, the barrel could quickly begin filling with seawater, like we've said. And while John could communicate with the boat via a rope called a signal line, which I'm guessing when it started filling with seawater, he was pulling the signal line quite a lot. <laughs> there were at least five separate occasions in the early days when he came close to drowning. So it took him a while to figure everything out, and there were a few occasions where he was nearly drowned. Oh, did he die? No. Because nearly dying aside, once people began to see that John was actually able to do what he said he could do. So he, he was going around London saying, I could do this. I've got this machine. And they were going, well, what have you salvaged? And he's like, nothing yet, but I could. Once he started to get a few people who saw the results, he could go back and say, you know, you were saying come back when it works. Well, it's worked. I'm here. Come on, let's do this. Especially when he had the evidence from one of his first diving jobs when he managed to retrieve 25 chests full of silver and 65 cannons from a man of war. 65 cannons? I don't know why the cannons were considered a great thing because they I'm assuming they were made of iron as well, so they would have started to rust unless it was like the ship had gone down literally last week and they were like, oh, there's some good cannons down there. But as well... You know, he'd have to hold each cannon individually and be pulled up and then drop it on deck. So he was lifting 65 cannon from the seafloor and 25 chests. I imagine those arms with the pressure and everything got massive. Like swollen. No, like muscular, because he wasn't walking around. He was just lying flat, so the rest of his body wasn't doing any work. But his arms, he would have had massive biceps. I think he's really... Sorry. But I think he's really muscly now. Yeah, the more he does it, I'm guessing, the more muscly he gets. And more and more people, who thought they knew the sights of treasure laden wrecks, wanted to enlist his services in order to make their fortune. So he went from being, everyone was thinking he was a bit of a crank, a bit crazy, to he was one of the most popular guys. Everybody wanted to see if they could get John to, to go on a salvaging mission with them, with his fantastical diving contraption that he invented himself from just a barrel Barrel. In ba fact, ba barrel. John became something of a celebrity. A celebrity? Yes, which was when he was contacted by Edmund Haley himself. A man so famous, he has a comet named after him. What? Yeah. So there's a comet named Edmund Haley? Well, it's called Haley's Comet. Haley's Comet? And it visits, it visits Earth every, every now and then. The next visit, uh, in fact, will be 2061. So you can put that in your diary. It'll be passing back past us in uh, 2061. And then you'll get a chance to see Haley's Comet. So how long, How old will I be? Oh, very old. No, you'll be in your late 40s. It only comes around once and seldom, but you will in your lifetime get a chance to see Haley's Comet. Okay. He wanted to just... Haley wanted to... Haley wanted to discuss the design because he didn't believe that there would actually be enough air for John to stay submerged for as long as he was claiming. So Haley was like, I've worked out the calculations on the cubic capacity of your barrel and the average lung capacity, da 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 da, da and I don't think that you can stay under. So they had a bit of a, a, a chat about... Well, John was just giving him the facts. I don't think John ever worked it out beyond... Now that he's doubting, I think it's 90-10. 
No, Haley wasn't hiring him to do a salvage job. He just wanted to work out the maths. Okay. He was just an interested observer. He wasn't somebody with a vested interest. So there was no money exchanged. There was just... I know. John could sell the cannons! Well, no, he salvaged them for somebody else. So they kept the cannons and they gave him a bit of money. Yay. 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 And then the cannons were refitted and used to kill people in war. Naval war. <laughs> they fired cannons at people. Who? Me? No. Around this time, mainly the Spanish. Why Spanish? We had a big tiff with the Spanish for the longest time. We seem to have made up now. Okay. And they take a lot of our expats, um, whether they want to or not. But, yeah, there was, a long, there was a long time when the biggest bad guys for the, for the English were the Spanish. We really hated each other. English Spanish. Niche. Yeah? Are you trying to find some common ground based upon the sounds of English. the... English. That has an ish at the end. Spanish. Ish at the end. Yeah. Yeah, but not in Spanish. They they use different words for English and Spanish, so it doesn't, it doesn't work quite as well as you think. Anyway, shall we get back to the story? Yes. John began working all over the world for employers all over Europe. So he worked for the Dutch, he worked for the Portuguese, he did a lot of work for the East India Company. Uh, and he completed dives in places as far afield as the West Indies, the Cape of Good Hope, and at Porto Santo. So he was he was globe-trotting now. He'd take his barrel, he'd pop it on a ship, they'd sail him to where they wanted to go, and then they'd drop him in the water. So he saw the world. He went from being a simple... A simple... That's not really that far, is it, France? He went from being a simple wool merchant with 17 kids to feed to a globe-trotting salvage expert celebrity. With 17 children. Still with 17 kids. And And a suffering wife. All because he was the person who was willing to get in a barrel during an eclipse. The end. That's not the end. How long do we have left? Loads. Is it true? Yes. Is it true? Well, the more you interrupt, the longer it takes. Okay. Working to a depth of up to 22 metres in his leaky and frequently breaking diving contraption, he completed hundreds of dives over the course of the next two decades. In 1736, as an example, he reportedly dived at the wrecks of four English men of war, one English East Indiaman, two Dutch men of war, five Dutch East Indiamen, two Spanish galleons, and two London galleys. Or, more than one major salvage operation every month. And you think, they've got to get him there, he's got to do all the work and they've got to get back. All of these are on sailing ships. Okay. So they're all with sail, there's no um, engine on the oh, ship. Okay. So that is, he is working himself hard if he's doing more than one is, a month. Is he tired? I imagined quite often he was tired. But I hope they fed him well. Yeah. Needless to say, after two decades of this amount of work, John, with his stacked arms, huge muscles, was also an incredibly wealthy man. He moved his family into a large two-storey house with a thatched roof called Odiknoll. What's that? It's a manor house called Odiknoll. What's that? Which sat in the beautifully named parish of Kingscaswil. Okay. Very normal names, aren't they? Yeah. Odiknoll in Kingscaswil. That's very normal. Amongst other things, the manor had its own specific bread oven, which I'd like to have. 
Yeah, so would I. So I could bake bread and bread. So he's living in a large thatched house with its own bread oven. Yeah. That's the dream. Hey, I know. Mm. He could sell some bread and become a baker. Well, that's what um, that's what his wife could do, isn't it? Yeah, his wife could become a baker. Yeah, and put all the kids to work. Yeah. They'd have a massive bakery with 17 kids working it. There you go. And, and a buffed husband. A buffed husband, yeah. Well, he could finally retire if they set up the bakery, couldn't yeah, he? Yeah, he could That'd finally retire. That'd be nice for him, finally. Yeah. He could rest his massive I mean, he spent dog. two decades putting his life at risk, and he's finally got the reward, so that's nice. 200. Uh, no, two two decades. So he's worked for 20, 20 years, years of going down in this leaky contraption this worked very well for him but he probably wants to give up at some point and unfortunately when you become successful other people will become jealous and in 1749 a man called mr lay we don't know his first name wrote to the gentleman's magazine to claim that john lethbridge was nothing but a dirty little thief thief he accused him of thievery can i say so Go on. It's the F one. <laughs> Go on. I don't want to say it. Okay. I'm not. Well, I say it in my mind, but I've never said it out loud. Where were you going to put it? What the? What the fuck? Yes. Fair enough. Okay. Well, what? I will tell you the fuck. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> only in this context. Yes, only in this context. Lay claimed that a Mr. Simmons, a carpenter from Totnes, had invented a diving boat that he had tested in the River Dart in front of a large crowd a few years before John had invented his own version. He claimed that John had probably been in the crowd and had copied the design and claimed it as his own. So he said, actually, this was invented by Mr. Simmons. No, it's not. There are a few issues with the claim. Firstly, the two designs were very different. Simmons' submarine was self-propelled and had no armholes to allow the pilot to grab anything from the sea floor. Also, Simmons had never made this claim while he was alive, because Mr Simmons was dead by this point. What? And after the initial test of his own submersible, there was no evidence to suggest that he'd ever taken it into the water again. So, saying that John had stolen this idea and it got rich off someone else's sort of, you know, work, was completely fabricated. But people will try and, and have a go to make some money out of other people, especially people who they know are rich, by making claims like this, probably hoping that, that John would come out and say, if you just shut up, I'll give you some money to shut up and to stop making these claims and besmirching my good name. You take this money and you, you stop it, Mr Lay. <laughs> And although it does seem that Mr. Lay was just trying to cause trouble with his letter, I, for one, am quite happy he did it. Why? Because it prompted a response from John Lethbridge, which provided most of the information that was used in this episode. So John felt the need to defend himself, so he also wrote a letter to the Gentleman's Magazine, pointing out to Mr. Lay all the things that were wrong in his accusations, and as part of that, and as part of that, he gave a full description of what he'd built, when he'd built it, how he'd built it, and all the stuff that he'd been doing with it over the past sort of 25 years. 
So it was really useful for us that there was this crank called Mr. Lay who wanted to stir up trouble. Because if he hadn't, we probably wouldn't know half the stuff we know about John Lethbridge and his brilliant machine. Having found a way to provide for his many, many children, John Lethbridge was able to retire from his salvaging in around 1750. And they opened a bakery called... The... Called... The Puffy. The Puffy. The Puffy Bakery. The Puffy Bakery. Yes. Run by John Lethbridge and Mrs Lethbridge. Yes. And their 17 children. Yes. The Puffy. Whatever he did, he had the chance to enjoy the nearly 100,000 he had recovered from the ocean depths. Approximately the same amount as the inspiration for his machine, William Phipps. William Phibbs. He died a decade later on December the 11th, 1759, at the age of 84. He'd done well. He'd done well. And he was buried in Walborough Church. He said his... that there were no deaths. Well, the story started in 16-odd, so he was not going to still be alive. He lived a long life. He didn't die salvaging. Him and his wife had a successful bakery for many years. Called the Puffy. Called the Puffy. All of his kids grew glorious secret moustaches. It was a good time. <laughs> what about the girl kids? They also grew secret moustaches, but they were super secret moustaches. His most famous salvage is now thought to be the Dutch ship Slot to Hoog. Slot, slot to Hoog. Yes, it's slot as in S-L-O-T. Ter, T-E-R, and Hoog is H-O-O-G-E. Slot to Hoog. Slot to hoog! When he recovered over three tonnes of silver. Just like his hero, Sir Phipps. Sir Phipps. Well, it's a tenth of what he Thank recovered you, in, a, in a single one. Thank you, Sir Hips. Sir Phipps. Thank you, Sir Pips. Though thankfully, unlike his hero, John Lethbridge never had to deal with any witches. Which is always a better thing to do. Yes, and have a bakery instead called the Puffy. And as you know, if you do need to deal with a witch, you treat them with respect. And that way, they won't curse you. So, that, Evie, was your inventor story. Thank you. Did you enjoy having a story that wasn't about queens and princesses for once? Yes. Mm. You have to start a new tier list of inventors. Okay, at the tier list, he's at the top of inventors. And at the bottom currently. No, he's at the top slot. Yeah, but we've I've only got... done one. No, I've got Which lots... other inventors do you know? I've got lots of different slots, dude, and he fits at the top. Okay, what about Hubert Cecil Booth? He's at He invented the... the vacuum cleaner. Hmm, he's below this he's guy be- he's be- he invented the vacuum cl- do you know what we've got in our house what a vacuum cleaner do you know what we don't have in our house what a barrel with armholes <laughs> we could easily use that as a vacuum cleaner how there's no vacuum <laughs> put all the fluff that you pick up with your arms in the bin <laughs> plus plus the little mask will protect you from the fluff it would protect me from the fluff. I'm very allergic. So at the moment, your tier list of two inventors is John Lethbridge at the top, Hubert Cecil Booth, second. <laughs> Fair enough. 
So before we just quickly go, do you have a message for our dear, dear poddy peeps? Yeah. If you ever invent something and you would like to share it with us, if from inspired by this episode, just let us know. Do we want a cut of their profits? No. No? So we're not going, like, 70, 30? No. We get nothing. So if we've inspired somebody to invent a, a, a deep sea salvage operation and they make millions, we should get nothing for being the inspiration. Mm, well, it, it, at least give us 20 or 30. 30 what? Percent or pounds? Percent. Oh, yeah, okay. That'll work. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. We're, we're, we're really needing that money, guys. Whenever, whenever you can, we'd be very, very grateful. Bye. 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 Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.